This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 18th. Today, a deep dive into Medicare for All, one country that's benefiting from the U.S.-China trade war, and what a dollar can buy in politics. So we've talked a lot about Medicare for All in this campaign. Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs. Medicare for all who want it. Medicare for America. It's constantly an issue that's brought up during Democratic debates. Costs will go up for billionaires and go up for corporations. It's a thing that people are asked about on the trail. Senator Warren says she can pay for Medicare for all without hitting the middle class. Can she? But I think it's worth just unpacking for a second. Like, what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about Medicare for all? Yeah, Medicare for All has become, I think, the Bermuda Triangle of the Democratic primary. That is what most Americans want. Medicare for all who want it. Understand what that really means. It's Medicare for all who can afford it. Because they all get sucked into it, and basically none of them have been able to escape. Why unnecessarily divide this country over health care when there's a better way to deliver coverage for all? Senator Sanders. Well, as somebody who wrote the damn bill, as I said, (laughs) let's be clear. My name is Jeff Stein. I cover economic policy for The Washington Post. So the idea of Medicare for All is that everyone in America would be enrolled on Medicare, but not Medicare as it currently exists, which provides some benefits, not entire benefits or not comprehensive benefits to people over the age of 65. This Medicare for All system, as it's become known, would provide free medical, dental, long-term vision and all other kinds of care you can imagine, essentially, to every American in the country, including legal permanent residents, immigrants. And that would be a change to the healthcare system unlike anything America has ever done before. Currently, we have about 30 million Americans with no health insurance at all, another 150 or so million Americans who have insurance through their employer, through work, and we have a hodgepodge of other um, systems, other public systems, such as Medicaid, the existing Medicare program, And it's this big, confusing morass with all kinds of different ways that people get health insurance. This would say, forget all that. All of that goes away and every single person gets swept under this one umbrella program called Medicare for All. You get your Medicare card when you're born with your social security number and you can take that to the doctor and you would be guaranteed free point of service care for your entire life. So then why do you hear people also calling Medicare for all single-payer or single-payer insurance or a single-payer system? Like, what does that mean? A single-payer system means that everyone in the country is placed on a single government plan. And a big part of the benefit of that is that you have only one game in town for physicians and providers and other parts of the healthcare system that currently make 
a ton of money from the confusion and the competition. And this would say the government is able to drive down prices by setting the amount. And if the physicians and the providers don't like it, they're out of luck. There's nowhere else for them to go. They have to accept the government insurance, and that's their only option. So if the government is the one responsible for paying for the bills, they can just straight up say, no, we're not paying four gazillion dollars for a Q-tip. That's right. So as it stands now, for Democratic candidates who are leading the polls, what is their stance on this? And I I think it's worth maybe starting with Senator Bernie Sanders because he is someone who has been talking about Medicare for all for a long time. Copayments are gone. Deductibles are gone. All out-of-pocket expenses are gone. Yeah, Sanders has supported Medicare for all for decades ran on it in 2016 and helped popularize it and bring it, you know, the national debate. For senior citizens, it will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all, you don't know that, second Bernie. of all, we'll I, just, second I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. Senator Elizabeth Warren opposed the idea, or at least expressed pretty strong reluctance about it in her 2012 Senate run. Since then, she said that she supports it. I'm with Bernie on Medicare for all, and let me tell you why. Well, on that for at least a time, erased any doubts among some people on the left about whether she was fully on board with Medicare for All. The other two leading candidates in the race, former Vice President Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, have been more skeptical about Medicare for All and have seen it as a way for them to demonstrate that they're the moderates and the centrists in the race by saying, I know that the senator says she's for Bernie. Well, I'm for Barack. I think the Obamacare worked. I think the way in which we add to it, replace everything that's been cut, add a public option, guarantee that everyone will be able to have affordable assurance, number one. Look, we can still get to universal coverage. We can make sure everyone is insured, but not at the expense of forcing everyone in America to be on the single-payer plan and not guaranteeing comprehensive benefits to everyone in the country. Because what is being proposed when people talk about Medicare for all, that would mean that everyone who has insurance from their employers, which at least in America has been a pretty accepted way of how we do health insurance, that would mean that everyone would lose their current health insurance and have to do something new. And I think that's a really scary prospect for a lot of people. The polling on this is all over the place. I think the counterpoint that the single-payer advocates I speak to make is that a lot of people in the private job market lose their jobs frequently and that there's quite a bit of churn in the job market. So you have people cycling in and out of low-wage work all the time, and those people are losing their benefits. And so, look, if you're poor, this gives you stability. Of course, there are also lots of people who, you know, maybe have higher incomes who have gotten used to the benefits that they have and do not want to lose them and would be upset in that kind of a change. But it's a a nuanced issue. But what would be the drawback from just having a system like what Mayor Pete Buttigieg or what Senator Kamala Harris have been talking about, which is some kind of middle ground that everyone who wants to get on a bigger, beefier national Medicare system would be able to do that, but that the people who really like their health insurance would be able to hang on to it if they wanted to? First, I mean, there's a lot of merit to what they're saying. Some of the counterarguments include that you're not really able to get the cost containment if you still have all these competing plans out there. So the other really important thing I think is worth keeping in mind is that there's this concern, I think, on the left that if you structure something in the way that Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg have called for, you're still going to have people who are not poor but not rich who are getting really squeezed by these health care costs. So... 
as people are considering the different plans or different approaches that are being proposed by Democratic candidates, it's interesting because a lot of that debate is about what they actually want to do. But then a lot of the debate is also about how a Medicare for all plan could actually work, who would pay for it or how it would get paid for, essentially. And it seems like people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have not always had really great answers for that. Will middle class taxes go up? Will private insurance be eliminated? Look, what families have to deal with is cost. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here. Every study done shows that Medicare for all is the most cost effective approach to providing health care to every man, woman. There have been a number of plans that have been put out there by both candidates and economists that identify how we could do this, how we could pay for it without driving our nation massively into debt. And Senator Elizabeth Warren recently made big headlines by being the first candidate to really articulate exactly how she would do this. Um, The plan was over 40 pages long. She went in great detail, and SNL had a lot of fun at how wonky and data-driven the whole apparatus seemed to be and how much, you know, questioning how much voters would really get into these numbers. Hi, sorry, I have a follow-up because I'm annoying. You said your plan would cost $20.5 trillion, but other economists have said it could cost $34 trillion. Right, okay, let me stop you right there. And we're talking trillions. You know, when the numbers are this big, they're... They're just pretend. You might as well say it costs Furchin Nanjillion over 12 a D10. You know, same difference. All right, next. Who we got? Sorry, Senator. I'm going to need to see the math on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, you want to see the math? Okay, I'll show you. Look at this. Here. Yeah. Do you understand this? I do. I could explain it to you, but you'd die. Okay. Next For policy reporters, it was a lot of fun and an interesting exercise. Did, did you actually read it? The I whole, did. I did. Re- I did read the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> so, ha- having read all forty-something pages, what do you think are the major revelations of this new plan, and what do you think are the potential points for criticism? So, just to break apart how it actually works for a second, Warren is calling for a, a Medicare for All plan, as we discussed, that would finance benefits for everyone in the country, and she gets to this thirty trillion number that people have set out as a realistic cost in a few interesting ways. The first is she says we're going to way drive down the cost of healthcare in this country. We're going to way slash the amount that hospitals get paid, the amount that doctors get paid. And that basically, I'm, I'm using rough figures here, but that slices like $10 trillion off the total. Now, some people say that that's really optimistic. The doctors are a powerful lobby. You're never going to do that. But okay, let's give her that. Let's say that's within the realm of possibility, as some people think. Then she says, we're going to soak the heck (laughs) out of corporations and the rich. We're going to tax the bejesus out of them. We're going to take, I think it's something like $12 trillion, 10 to $12 trillion from the rich and corporations. We're going to jack up the corporate tax rate. We're going to expand Warren's signature wealth tax to be way bigger and hit billionaires and millionaires. So that's like another $10 trillion, let's say. Let's say that gets us two-thirds of the way there. And this is why I've been seeing so many tweets that are concerned for whether Bill Gates would still be a billionaire under <laughs> Elizabeth Warren's plan. Correct. Yes, there's been a lot of talk about just how aggressive she gets on the billionaire side there because she's trying to make this work. And the key to understanding this is that unlike Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren said, I can do this without raising taxes on the middle class one bit. Sanders has said very consistently, your healthcare costs will be zeroed out and your overall costs will go down, but your taxes might go up a little bit. 
Warren is making a different claim. She's saying, I can do this without raising middle class taxes at all. And a lot of people have questioned whether that math is feasible. And that leads us to the final $10 trillion that she needs here. She is doing, I think, an interesting move to get to that. She, she puts a bunch of things together. Part of it is cuts to military spending. Part of that is she says, we'll pass immigration reform. Part of that is she says, we'll have higher take-home pay because once people don't have healthcare spending, they'll have more money to go out and have in their pockets, and that will lead to more money coming into federal coffers. But the biggest thing she does for that last chunk of money is basically what's called the head tax, where she would assess businesses the same amount per employee, basically what she's calling an employer Medicare contribution fund. And her pitch is that currently employers currently spend a ton of money on healthcare already. And so we should just repurpose that money into the new federal system. It's basically that if when I have a bill for my doctor, I pay some of it, my insurance pays a lot of it, but also my employer, they pay part of that bill. So the money that employers are paying now for people's medical bills, instead of paying for that, that money would be put directly into the Medicare system given over to the government. I'm so glad you got it. I'm really glad it got communicated. <laughs> she She's pitching that as a tax on businesses. Most economists you talk to say that will be passed on to the consumer. Some people on the left, some allies of Senator Sanders have said, no, 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 no. That's still a middle-class tax. You're just calling it something else. Senator Sanders says, look, your healthcare costs are going to go down and your taxes will go up. That's neat and easy to understand. But Warren has put herself in this box where she's said, I'm not going to raise middle-class taxes. So instead of doing the, the sort of simple way of explaining this, she's constructed this elaborate mechanism that is, I will say at the very least, it'll be interesting to see how she is able to explain this during the debate stage. Maybe she can do it. Um, she's certainly more adept at explaining policy than I am, but, but it's at least going to be a challenge. I should add that on Friday, Warren released a transition plan uh, to achieve Medicare for all. Critics have charged, and, and the plan says, that she would not push for Medicare for all for a single-player plan until the third year of her administration. She would try to pass a public option in the first year and then expand that um, in, in the third year of her term. Critics say that that's a retreat from her position that she would push for Medicare for all. Do you think that we're still going to be talking about Medicare for all as a huge central part of this campaign once we get past the primaries? Because part of this feels like the differences between Democratic candidates on this are such a point of attention, just because there are a lot of things that they actually don't have that many big differences on. And this feels like one of the meatier issues. But I wonder if once we get to next summer and there's a Democratic candidate going against President Trump, whether Medicare is going to be kind of pushed to the side and nobody's really going to talk about it anymore, and certainly not on this level of detail. And we'll be moving on to things like immigration and gun control. Well, I think if Sanders or Warren is the nominee, we're still likely to hear a lot about Medicare for all, especially because Republicans will certainly try to attack them over that issue. But I will say that health care and this question of how do we structure our insurance systems, which are basically anyone from both sides of the political aisle will say are, are really a mess right now and really hurting a lot of people. That's going to be at the forefront of people's minds, I think, basically for the rest of our, our lifetimes paying attention to politics. I saw a poll I found really interesting last week about the quote-unquote blue wall states, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin. And the poll showed that while voters approve of Trump on the economy, he's negative 21 voter disapproval on healthcare issues. And that poll also showed that 
healthcare is tied with the economy in these voters' minds as the most important issue. And so maybe, you know, if it's Biden or Buttigieg, Medicare for all fades from the national consciousness, but left activists will continue to press them over it. We're going to continue to hear about this. And healthcare could be, I think, the defining issue of the 2020 election. Jeff Stein is an economic policy reporter for The Post. Democratic presidential candidates are expected to keep talking about Medicare for All at Wednesday's primary debate. It's co-hosted by MSNBC and The Washington Post. We'll have more stories previewing the debate this week. And we'll have an extra episode of our show early Thursday morning, recapping all the big moments. The debate airs Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. You can also watch it at WashingtonPost.com. In terms of what we saw, you know, it was immediate. That's Sheila Adams in York, Maine. And I am vice president of sales and marketing here at Maine Coast. Primarily what we do is live lobster. And the business of live lobster has taken a hit ever since China put tariffs on American seafood. You know, the tariffs went into effect on July 7th. Our last viable day to ship or to export to mainland China with them was July 3rd. And after that, essentially, other than some opportunistic buying when the price is right, uh, really most shipments into mainland China have ceased. So about 80% of the business we were doing into mainland China is no longer there. Americans in the lobster industry are seeing sales go way down because of these tariffs. But the Chinese are still buying lobster. They're just buying it from Canada. Uh, Whenever you're ready to go, just tell us. We're not far out from Mimdagash Harbor now. So I went to Prince Edward Island towards the tail end of their fishing season. Lobster fishing is far and away the dominant industry on the island. The island is also Canada's smallest province. It's gorgeous. This is Rachel Siegel. And I'm a business reporter at The Washington Post. And everyone has some attachment to the lobster industry. So, for example, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I went out on a boat with a fisherman named Mandy Perry, who is the 30-year-old captain of her boat. She's in charge of her boyfriend and younger brother who work for her. And she inherited the boat from her father. Her brother is a fisherman. Everybody in this extended town and really by extension the island are all just really deeply rooted in this industry. What's a good day? A good day would be a thousand pounds (laughs) since we didn't fish yesterday. So you have Maine wholesalers who are experiencing the trade war in one way. On the other end of the spectrum is someone like Jason MacArthur. And what is your title? Controller. For? By the water shellfish. Which is also a live lobster holding and shipping company on Prince Edward Island. And if you had to put a figure or some sort of number on how much the demand has increased here, how would you characterize it? Probably 25 to 30 percent. 25 to 30 percent up. Increase in sales to China. Increase in sales, okay, specifically to China. Yeah. Okay. He said that about 40% of his company's product goes to China, and since the trade war, he's seen an uptick of about 25 to 30%. Basically, we're riding the wave right now until the tariffs are taken away. (laughs) So while things are way down in Maine, business is booming up in Canada. Because Canadian lobsters are suddenly much cheaper in comparison to Maine lobster. And they don't have a tariff on them. Basically, Canada is not in a trade war with China. And I find this funny just because I can imagine, like, Canadian lobsters and Maine lobsters are 
The same lobsters. They're the same. They're the same They're lobster. all in the same ocean. They're all like running around on the floor. Same of the water. Sea. Yeah, same water. And what's interesting is that it's not just this rift in the supply chain. It's actually what the trade war has done has caused this cultural rift too, because it's not just that they're the same type of lobster. There's so much shared history between the Canadian lobster industry and the main lobster industry, starting with the fishermen all the way up the supply chain. But what this trade war has done has sent two neighbors that have pretty much always run in tandem in totally different directions. And the way that they're reacting to that change is also very different. And so what does that look like on a day-to-day basis for Maine lobstermen and for Canadian lobstermen? How have their lives changed since these tariffs were put in place? So if you are a Maine wholesaler and you used to have all different types of customers in China buying regular large orders, now you suddenly have to fill that business somewhere else. But China is most interested in buying live lobster. And as you might imagine, it is really complicated and a very delicate feat to fly live lobster all over the world. And they, f- they fly? They don't they go fly in a boat? live lobster all around the world. Right wow. now in the skies, there are live lobsters. and <laughs> I love that. And not all markets are equipped to just start like having live lobster flown into them. So I talked to one wholesaler, for example, who spent five plus years growing these relationships with their Chinese customers. And then once the tariffs went into effect, the rug was essentially pulled out from under them. And now they're needing to fill that business somewhere else and quickly because it's their livelihood. It puts a fair amount of uncertainty into the business and into the industry as a whole. You can have the best team and the best business plan in the world, but when an external force that you have no control over comes into play, then all you you can't prepare for anything like that. All you can do is do your best to respond. Even though they previously put so much kind of time and effort into creating their ability to very quickly and very effectively ship all these lobsters live to China. Exactly. And China was a huge market well before the trade war went into effect. Basically, the rising Chinese middle class really latched on to lobster from the North Atlantic as a kind of status symbol. It's something that the middle class in particular really gravitated towards. And so with the rise of the middle class in China, you see this rise in American and Canadian live lobster exports there too. I'm curious if there are other industries that have been, that have basically had a big win because of the trade war, that they suddenly become much more competitive to a Chinese market because everything in America suddenly costs a lot more. Yeah. One other major industry that's being affected in the U.S. is soybeans. So China used to buy a good deal of market share of American soybeans, and now they've increasingly been buying from Brazil. So American soybean farmers are worried that that's also lost business that won't come back. So by putting these tariffs in place, in many ways, not only has it added an an extra challenge to U.S. business people, to U.S. manufacturers, people who who usually export things to China, it's actually presenting this opportunity for a lot of other people around the world to kind of rush in and be able to fill that market and maybe establish a permanent relationship with China where they are the chief provider of that item. Exactly. I mean, if if China isn't buying lobster from the U.S., they're going to buy it from somewhere else. So similarly, American soybean farmers are really concerned that China has increasingly been buying soybeans from Brazil while the trade war has been going on. And they worry that that's another example of an industry that might not come back even when the trade war is over. Rachel Siegel is a business reporter for The Post.
This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now one more thing. So let's say you have a dollar. What can you actually do with that? You can maybe buy a pack of gum. So then why do presidential candidates keep asking you for just one dollar? Your dollar can do a lot for them. I'm Michelle Yehi Lee. I cover money and politics and campaign money. Right now, there are so many Democratic candidates running for president. And each of these candidates want to show that there is momentum for their campaign, that there is enthusiasm and a donor base that's really eager to give them money. A way that they try to show that is by saying, we have X many donors from X many states who are giving us money for our campaigns, and that's because they're so excited about us and want to show their support in every way that they can, even if they give a dollar. And that's why it's a really big deal for them to be able to get a dollar from you. We're going to build from the grassroots. We're actually going to build a foundation for the Democratic Party that is really about face-to-face, person-to-person. We are going to also launched what I think is unprecedented uh, in modern American history, and that is a grassroots movement, John. Another reason a dollar donation nowadays is really big to the Democratic candidates is that they are trying to qualify for a donor threshold and a polling threshold in terms of making it to the debate stage. So for the first time, the Democratic National Committee is requiring candidates to meet a certain polling threshold as well as a donor threshold in order to qualify for the national debate stage. And your ability to get on the debate stage and perform well can really make a big difference for your campaign, especially if you're one of these candidates who doesn't have much of a national presence. Join us uh, by making a contribution today at amyklobuchar.com. Every little bit and big bit helps. I need 500 contributions before midnight to fund them and to make that debate stage. Can I count on your help before midnight? And I'm hoping people uh, will help. 35,000 people about have already done so, but we need some more help in these last 36 hours. And I hope more people will come on to CoreyBooker.com and make a donation. The small dollar donor base is such an important source of money for Democratic candidates. And that's not only because it can be an indicator of grassroots support, a lot of energy for your campaign. It's also because President Trump does a really good job of drawing small dollar donors. So for you to be able to compete with President Trump's donor base, you have to build up a strong small dollar donor base to show that there is equally as much support, if not more, for you as a Democrat than there is for President Trump. So if you're a Democratic candidate, You much prefer being able to say, look at how many people support me. Look at how many people are giving me money quarter after quarter, month after month, a dollar at a time, five dollars at a time, because they just really want to be a part of this movement versus saying, look at this small number of people giving me like thousands of dollars at a time. That just doesn't carry the same populist or grassroots appeal. Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We are starting a Post Reports group on Facebook. It's a place where listeners can ask questions or share their reflections on what's going on in the news, and where we can share more information about the podcast and the stories that we feature. 
This week, we'll be posting photos and dispatches from Atlanta, where folks from the Post are getting ready for Wednesday night's Democratic debate. To join the group, go to facebook.com slash groups slash postreports, or find a link at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.